So we are in this series in Mark's Gospel, and uh, I was thinking earlier, today would have been a good day for the stilling of the storm, but we did that last week, so we can't do it again. I could have repeated it, see if you noticed, uh, but we're going to look at uh, the next story along. And then we, I said this last week, and we're kind of saying this as we go, a lot of the Gospel stories are really familiar. It's like, oh yeah, I've heard that one before, oh yeah, I know what's going to happen next. But as we spend time in them, the more we spend time in them, the more Jesus seems to kind of grab hold of our hearts and, and challenge us and stir us and encourage us. And, and I hope that you're experiencing that. And I would encourage you, as always, be reading uh, Mark's gospel. Uh, it takes maybe 90 minutes to two hours, depending on how fast you read, to read the whole thing through. It'd be a great thing to do to take some time in an evening or get up extra early or if you're awake in the night, just read through Mark's gospel or listen to it and get kind of the feel of the whole thing uh, all at once. It's quite a powerful experience to get that. And so it really is well worth your time. Uh, today we're kind of jumping into chapter 5. And so uh, last week we had the stilling of the storm. And the stilling of the storm comes after uh, Jesus did four parables. There's just a little bit of kind of uh, collecting that, that Mark has done in the way he's written it. He's, he's put four parables back to back, and then he puts four miracles back to back. And they're all uh, kind of a, a sequence of, of healings. And so healing in quotes, he heals the storm and stops that. But then he deals with uh, a guy with demons, and we haven't read that story. We're going to skip over that one. And then we come to what should be just one story, the healing of someone who's uh, kind of in a serious condition, but it becomes two stories, and we see more than just healing of disease in the two stories. So we're going to look at the, uh, that section together, and it's on page, where are we, 840. If you have one of the church Bibles, 840, and uh, I'm going to read the whole thing to you, starting at verse 21. So you'll see on the right-hand side of page 840, a uh, little heading, and then verse 21. I'll read from there down to the end of the chapter. So it says this, When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked round to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. So it's, it's what we kind of see this several times in Mark's gospel. It's like a sandwich, right? You've got a, a story that starts, and then something else happens, and then, oh, hang on, there's a story to finish. And so there's these two people that need Jesus to care for them. There's a woman who's got a 12-year-old problem, and there's a man who's got a 12-year-old daughter with a problem. So there's two 12-year-old problems. In fact, when you start looking at it, you start seeing the contrasts and the kind of things they have in common. The man who's coming is a ruler of the synagogue. That's kind of like um, an elder of the church. It's not the minister or, or some kind of priest or something. It's a lay person but someone who's very influential, very respected in the, the local synagogue. It's somebody that, that really, if his daughter's not well, the whole town would be concerned. Kind of the little princess of the town, if you like. And she, she's 12 years old and she's not well. In fact, she's seriously not well. He says, my daughter is at the point of death. Now, in that culture, they were much more familiar with death than we are. And it's not, you know, this isn't, a, a, you know, like a man has a cold and he's at the point of death. Now, this is like a serious, if she's at the point of death, they would have known it. And so this man comes and he would have been influential. He would have probably been potentially wealthy, significant, respected. He was somebody in society. And his daughter has a serious, serious situation. In fact, it just seems like it's set up for Jesus to come and do something and to stop this kind of impending death for this little girl. But then as they're on their way, this woman comes up. And this woman who's had this problem for 12 years, it's a seriously long time, isn't it, to have that kind of a problem. She's had that for 12 years and it tells us that she spent everything. She spent all of her money on doctors and, and that her condition has just gone from bad to worse. No one's helped her. It's utterly hopeless. Think of the contrast there. This man was kind of at the top of society. This woman was very much at the bottom of it. Uh, in that culture, to uh, be bleeding or to come into contact with blood was to be ceremonially unclean. That means for 12 years, she hasn't been in a position where she can really participate in Jewish worship. And that means that everybody else would kind of steer clear and pull back. There wouldn't be the kind of sensitivity or discretion that we might have today with someone who has that kind of a problem. In fact, it might even raise the question, how do you get that kind of a problem? 
Maybe it was the way she'd lived her life. Maybe she deserved in people's eyes to be an outcast from society. She's got absolutely nothing. He had everything. He was at the top of society. She was at the bottom. Her problem was chronic. That means it was long-term and ongoing. But his daughter's problem was acute. She was on the point of death, at the point of death. This is a whole set of contrasts. Jesus deals with one of them in front of the crowd, and with the other one, he keeps people outside. It's like Mark is deliberately trying to kind of help us see that two 12-year-old problems, if you like, but there's a whole load of differences between them. But if you think about it, maybe one of the things that is the most striking about this story is that when that man has come to Jesus and said, my little daughter, 12 years old, she's at the point of death, please come. That's an emergency. And as they're going, this woman comes up and interrupts proceedings, although she's not trying to, but Jesus allows it to become an interruption. What would have been going through Jairus' mind? Um... Can we keep going? Like, my, my daughter's about to die, and you're stopping for what? For her? Even if he wasn't critical of her, just, you know, think about it in an in a emergency room, kind of an A&E situation. Hopefully, you, you always kind of have this mental process. When you go to A&E, you hope that the people who are behind the desk get the difference between serious and not serious, Right? You kind of hope that someone with a sprained ankle is not going to get ahead of somebody with chest pain, right? Because that could be serious. And here's Jesus going to deal with someone who is at the point of death. And it's obviously a serious situation. And he's delayed by a problem that's been going for 12 years. Come on, can't she wait? Surely she can wait a little bit longer. I mean, let's be fair, it's probably not nice, but she can probably make it another few hours. This girl may not. And so maybe one of the most striking things as we enter into this story is the way that Jesus just reverses all of the implicit value judgments that we make. Because even if we try to be objective and and try to say, well, come on, just like a waiting room, let's ignore status, let's ignore wealth, let's ignore place in society, let's simply treat the issues as they are, chronic versus acute. You know, we can try to do that, but it's so hard, isn't it? It's so hard as a human not to say, especially considering who she is, especially in light of maybe she deserves it, or maybe, maybe, maybe. All of these kind of things that we're so good at doing, even today in our politically correct culture, where you're not allowed to say anyone's worth more than anyone else, although there's all sorts of caveats and ways that you technically can, but we're in a society that's kind of ultra-sensitive, And yet even today, we would do the same thing, wouldn't we? We might not say it, but we probably feel it. 12-year-old girl in a a good family. A woman who maybe has had a terrible past. Even without saying it, we would start leaning, wouldn't we? We would start kind of going, hang on, I mean, seriously, like, do you know what she's done? Do you know how unclean she is? Do you know... There's all sorts of reasons why in our human nature we might find ourselves preferring one over the other. Seems like Jesus turns that around. 
Seems like Jesus deliberately makes, almost makes a show of caring for the person that the whole of society had treated as an outcast. He does that multiple times. He tells a story about two men that went to the temple, one a religious elite and one a tax collector. Turns out the tax collector is the one that gets saved, not the other guy, and everyone's shocked by the story. Jesus loves these kind of reversal type stories, and here he is. This woman comes, and he honors and cares for her as if she is the most important person in the world, which on its own is absolutely amazing. But what about the girl? And as he goes on, then the news comes. It's too late. She's died. Let's leave Jesus alone now. And then we get the second part. After healing her and then going on, he then heals the girl or raises the girl back to life. I don't know what to call that. It's not a resuscitation because resuscitation kind of needs to happen fairly quickly. All right, it's like there's sort of the signs of death on the surface, but there's still life within. I think she was dead. Right, the time that it took, the way they reacted, it wasn't like, well, if you can do something fast, maybe. No, it's, it's not really a resuscitation. But on the other hand, is it a resurrection? I mean, let's call it a half resurrection. Is that a category we can make up here today? A half resurrection doesn't mean that half of her came back to life it means that she came back to life when jesus said little girl rise up it's time to wake up i mean it's actually very tender very sweet the way he speaks to her it's almost like a mom coming into the bedroom first thing in the morning and opening the curtains and the child's just you know that kind of warm kind of look that they have and they kind of hold the hand and little stroke of the palm or whatever moms do and just say hey hey honey little one hey darling sweetheart whatever time to get up and there's that sort of gentleness it kind of sounds like that the way jesus talks to her but he is raising her from the dead And so she's fully alive, but why do I say a half-resurrection? Maybe a technicality, but later on she dies again. Okay, so that's that's what I mean by that. All the people Jesus raised, Lazarus, the widow's son, this, this little girl, they kind of went on, lived their lives, died the way normal people do. When Jesus rose from the dead, he never died again. And when we rise from the dead, when Jesus raises us... The immortal, sorry, the mortal, the, the dying, will put on immortality. How cool is that? Like, we will be raised to never die again. That's why I'm calling it a half-resurrection. Nonetheless, it's very cool, right? So, a very cool half-resurrection of the girl happens at the end of the chapter. Maybe it's worth us always pondering, what's Jesus teaching us in this moment? The way he cares for her and then the tenderness with which he cares for her. There's a care and a concern and a love and a a beautiful gentleness calling effectively both of them little girl or daughter or, or, you know, it's kind of, there's a, a cherishing of them as humans. That's a beautiful thing and we would do well to ponder that. But the thing that stands out to me even more than that, as I look at these two stories and how they're woven together is that both of them really underline and lift up the subject of faith. It's clear that faith is what makes the difference between life and death. Faith is the issue. But I want to just point out four things, maybe four lessons that these two stories give us 
in terms of faith, that lessons that may be helpful for us. It may be that, that you're here and you've, you know, you've never placed your faith, as we say. You've never believed in Jesus so as to become part of the family. These are important lessons for you. It may be that you trusted Christ years ago and you've been walking with him for decades. These are still important lessons. The first thing to notice is that faith is a recognition that we bring absolutely nothing to Jesus. We've got nothing, no hope, no plan B, no kind of, if this doesn't work, then I'll try. Faith is desperate. That's true for both of them, wasn't it? For all of his standing in society, for all of his influence, for all of uh, whatever money he had or whatever, Jairus knew that that little girl was dying and he suddenly felt overwhelmed with desperation. And then the woman comes along and she spent all of her money on doctors. You can actually read some of the cures in some of the Jewish literature that she would have gone through. They're not very nice at all. And she tried all of them. All the things she had to drink and all the things she had to swallow and all the things she had to do. And it's like, oh my goodness, no wonder it didn't help. They weren't particularly good on medical science. But she tried everything. And I think that's an important point, that faith means coming to Jesus with nothing, because otherwise what we tend to do is kind of sort of come to Jesus or actually not really come to Jesus. When, when we think, I, I've got it, I can handle it, I know how to deal with it, then we don't come to Jesus. When we think, I've got money in the bank and there's a really good clinic down the road, I'm just going to go there for treatment first. Faith is when we realize, actually, I've got nothing. No hope, no plan B, no way to fix this, no solution. Jesus, I need you and I'm desperate. And for us to come to faith in Christ, for us to, to come and uh, be brought into the family of God that is what he wants for us, we have to come empty-handed. We have to get to that point where there's no alternative, no plan B, no, yeah, but I think I can. No, I've got nothing. And that's why Christians tend to t- say that when they became a Christian, that the time when I came to faith in Christ was when I realized how desperate I needed him, how desperate I was. And I suddenly had this awareness of, of my sin and my shame and my failure and my, my sense of no hope and there's no way I can fix my life to get it good enough. For, and if I'm going to stand before God and be judged, I am absolutely in trouble. I've got nothing that I can bring and say, it's okay, look at this. I've got nothing. And so that's the starting point of faith, isn't it? To humbly bow before God and say, God, actually, it's hard for me to say it, but I need you. I've got nothing. I wonder how many of us, having done that and trusted Christ, still struggle to do that as we continue to try to trust Christ. How often, day by day, do we say, I've got this. It's okay, I can handle this. And then when nothing works, eventually we come to God and say, oh, Lord, I've got this situation. And it's almost like he's going, yeah, I know, I've been waiting for you. What took you so long? How often is prayer our last resort? When actually, as those who maybe have understood how desperately needy we are and understood how good God is, maybe prayer needs to kind of become first resort instead of last resort in the little things of life and maybe the big things too. To come to him and say, I've got nothing. I need you. 
these w- women, if you like, the, the girl and her dad and the, the woman, they demonstrate that that very truth that we don't come with a plan we don't come with a set of resolutions we don't come with a hey god i've got this idea for fixing things would you mind blessing it no we come empty-handed and we come desperate and if he's not good to us we've got nothing notice another thing here uh, that faith is not just i come with nothing but it's also saying that i come with nothing not even my faith because we have this this habit as humans of turning our faith into a thing you know like the the the, the amount of faith or the quality of our faith sometimes people say oh if only i had your faith as if you know you've got this good faith and their faith is kind of a rubbish faith do you know what I mean? And, and there, honestly, there, there may be some of us here today who go, well, I don't really have the faith to be a Christian. Actually, no, faith is not a thing in that sense at all. Think about it this way. That, that woman, when she came to Jesus, if I can be harsh just for a second, her faith is kind of rubbish. Right? Basically, it's superstition combined with some rumor that Jesus has the power to heal and she doesn't trust him enough to kind of approach him and talk to him or anything like that she just kind of squeezes her way through the crowd thinking if I touch that garment then I get a cure and and honestly that's closer to superstition probably but somehow there's faith there and when Jesus calls her back or calls out and you know she comes forward he makes it really clear it is your faith that has made you well He doesn't want her going away thinking it was her maneuvering through a crowd that made her well or her ability to find the right garment to touch in a busy whatever. No, she's coming with this really quite weird faith. And yet Jesus says it's your faith that's made you well. It's not the quality of our faith that heals us. Jesus doesn't say it's the amount of faith that has made you well. No, it's simply that you trusted me. And some of us would probably say, actually, you know what? When I came to faith in Christ, when I first trusted him, I almost knew nothing about him. I mean, honestly, like my testimony, oh, that's kind of weak because, you know, I I didn't get it. Now I really get it and I'm much more thankful. But actually, for a lot of us, when we first come to Jesus, we're kind of like that woman. We're desperate, we're in need, and we're told about Jesus. And we kind of go, ah, if, if anyone can help me, maybe you can. And somehow Jesus accepts weak misdirected misunderstanding weird faith he accepts it he he lets us come to him we don't have to have all of our t's crossed and our i's dotted we don't have to pass a theological exam we just lean out and we reach for him and we discover that he's ready to welcome us with open arms let's make sure that we never fall into the trap of putting our faith in our faith You know where you start to think, I've got to work on my faith. I've got to increase my faith. This happened because my faith was too small. No, our faith is in him. And there will be times where our faith is strong and impressive and other people are like, oh, wow, I'm so swept along in the riptide of your faith. It's wonderful. But there will be other times where we know ourselves and we know our faith is puny and it's weak and it's filled with doubts. And and then we still go, Jesus, I'm trusting you. And he loves that. He welcomes that. We don't have to be spiritual giants in our faith. Let me give you an illustration. I think uh, I read this um, 
doesn't matter. I'll, I'll find it if you want to know where it is. But, but imagine three men in the woods and it's snowing and they're whatever you do, having a snowball fight or hunting or whatever. Probably hunting if it's a North American, right? So they're in the woods and then they see this bear coming towards them. So they start running, understandably. And as they're running, being chased by this bear, they come to a sort of precipice and there's a, a jump down, maybe 20 feet, 30 feet down, and there's a lake. But the lake is frozen. And the bear's coming and the lake's frozen. The bear's getting closer. Okay. And they jump. And one of them, the first one jumps, and all the way down he's saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And he lands and the ice holds him. The next guy jumps, saying, I think I've got a chance. I hope I've got a chance. It might hold me. And it holds him. And the third guy jumps uh, after looking at it and thinking, well, this time of year, it's probably about six inches thick. And it holds those two. And I weigh less. So, yeah, this is going to hold me. They've all got faith in the ice. They all jump. But their quality of faith is completely different. The first guy is in absolute panic. But he still jumps. His faith is puny, it's weak. The second guy, a little bit more faith. The third guy, really strong faith based on the facts that he's evaluated quickly. Let me ask you, who's saved the most? They're all saved equally, right? The ice holds all three of them. They all survive. The bear can keep looking for his breakfast somewhere else. They've all made it with different amounts of faith. And that's the way it works with Jesus too. We come to Jesus and one person can evaluate all the facts and look into the history and and say, you know what, the resurrection is absolutely based on fact. This is the most supported historical event of the ancient world. There's no question that the evidence supports this. And, And I've studied the scriptures and I've understood the evidence. And my goodness, this is not a book of myths. This is absolutely trustworthy. And there's evidence all over to affirm the trustworthiness of this and the reality of the resurrection. And I've, I've evaluated people's lives and I've seen how they've changed and my goodness look at how Christianity has has spread despite all of the evidence you know people coming against it and so on and you can make a very informed decision and say Lord here I am save me or you can just get desperate be in some dodgy motel room somewhere at the end of your rope and it's either suicide or Jesus and you can cry out to Jesus and he saves you either way Because it's not about the quality of our faith. It's about who our faith is in. And so we come to Jesus desperate with nothing, not even a quality of faith. Faith is just a, I need you and I'm leaning into you. I'm putting my weight onto you. That's all faith is. There's a third thing that we can see in this story or pair of stories. And the third thing is that we don't even know what's best as we come to Jesus. We, we don't have a clear perspective. All right, think about it. From the man's perspective, from Jairus' perspective, it was really obvious. Jesus, come quickly. If you can come quickly, you can lay your hands on my daughter and she can be made well. I, you know, this is a well thought through prayer, if you like. And what does Jesus do? Oh, there's this woman. And he gets distracted. And Jairus, if he had any hair, was probably tearing it out at that point. Because what in the world? Like, doesn't he realize this is serious? And she and her and... In his mind, he knew how his faith should be answered. Just like we do. 
How often do we come to God in prayer and say, Lord, there's a situation and here's what you should do. And here's when you should do it. And here's the speed at which you should do it. And how often does God answer our prayers? The answer is always. But how often does he answer our prayers the way we plan it out? Actually, typically he doesn't. Often the answer to prayer is not what we're expecting it to be. Often it can take days or weeks or months or even years to get to a point where we say, you know what? God knew what he was doing. But all the way through that, we've just had to trust. At the end of Mark 5, which, you know, wasn't a thing at that point, but at the end of Mark 5, as Jairus put his daughter down to sleep that night and, you know, told her a story, probably her resurrection, half-resurrection story, as he put her down to bed that night and laid his own head down on his pillow, he's already got a perspective on things. I knew exactly what Jesus should do. He knew better. And it's nice when within a few hours you can come to that place of saying, I knew, but he knew better. But often it's a lot lot longer than that. And when it's a lot longer than that, that moment, that time where Jairus was panicking as Jesus was delaying because of this woman, that moment for him was probably absolute panic. For us, it can be months and years of question. Months and years of why, Lord? Why haven't you? Why don't you? When will you? I know you care. I know you have the power. You know that I've prayed and I've prayed in Jesus' name and you're supposed to, but you haven't. And what Jairus experienced for a brief moment, some of us are still experiencing long term. It's hard. Sometimes it's desperately hard to be in that place. And yet the story of Jairus tells us, it reminds us, you may have your faith in the right person, but that doesn't mean that you have the complete picture. You may not know what's best. I wonder how many times Christians have prayed that they will stumble across the winning lottery ticket. But to my knowledge, God has never answered that prayer with a winning lottery ticket lying on the floor. And it'd be awkward if you bought it, then you have to explain it. But if you could find it, How many prayers could that answer? And yet God doesn't seem to work the way that makes so much sense to us. Let me encourage you, if you're in that place, if you're wondering, maybe your child, maybe your relative, maybe your situation, your work, your finance, something, and there's something and you've prayed and there doesn't seem to be the answer that just makes all the sense in the world, remember the one who is going to answer your prayer is not in the world in that sense. He's not restricted by your perspective. He knows what he's doing. And that ties into the fourth point, just briefly as we close. Both the woman that came and Jairus came with faith in desperation to Jesus. And they they had nothing to bring. That was point number one, right? They had nothing in terms of a quality of faith. Certainly hers is not as impressive as his. So the quality of faith is not the issue. They didn't actually have a clear perspective. And that is tied into the fourth point, which is they actually didn't even ask big enough. They didn't even realize how much he was going to do for them. The woman came thinking, if I can touch his garment, I can stop bleeding. I can get a cure. And in her eyes, that was enough. But what did she get? When Jesus stopped and said, hey, who touched me? His disciples kind of laughed and said, are you kidding? Everyone's touching you, Jesus. This is mad. 
The crowd's crazy. Who do you mean someone touched you? He said, no, 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 someone touched me. And she realized it was her and she came forward. Why? Why did Jesus delay the Jairus thing in order to care for the unnamed woman in that way? Was it to show her tenderness? Yes. But more than that, it was to reestablish her. Just think about that. Here's a woman who's been unclean for 12 years. Talk about an ongoing story. For 12 years, she's been on the outside of society. For 12 years, you don't go near her. You don't put your arm around her shoulder. You don't shake her hand. You don't, you know, you don't be her hairdresser. You don't do anything for her because it will then make you unclean. And so she's an absolute outcast. And Jesus knows that it's not enough just for the bleeding to stop. He needs to establish her so that everyone there knows she is healed and she's back. She matters. She counts. She wasn't expecting that. She thought she'd just get a little quick healing. And Jesus gave her so much more. Jairus thought that if Jesus could come quickly, he'd get a little, you know, relief of serious fever kind of thing. A little story to tell. Maybe an illustration next time he's preaching in the synagogue. Instead, he gets to witness a half-resurrection, as I'm calling it. Which is really, really cool. (laughs) He wasn't thinking half-resurrection. He wasn't thinking Jesus will raise her from the dead. He was thinking the fever will leave and she'll maybe be able to, uh, you know, eat and drink again. They both got more than they expected. And actually that's true for us too. Sometimes we come to Jesus and we pray for something. We say, Lord, I, you know, I really could use a parking space or whatever. And we, we pray for the thing. And he doesn't give us exactly what we're expecting because we're stuck in time and he's got this bigger, broader perspective. And then what he gives us is so much better. I, I thought that you would take this away. Instead, ended up in hospital and this whole situation. But in the hospital, we met these people and we told them about Jesus and three people came to know the Lord. Whoa, God knew what he was doing. There was a situation and, you know, I I thought it was obvious. Jesus, you give me the money, I'll pay the bills, everyone's happy. You know, you get the glory and and it's going to be wonderful. And instead, it meant to ended up with a change of situation and circumstance. And then someone else came and helped financially. And it became this complicated thing and it took time. But, oh my goodness, how much better was Jesus' plan? And often we don't think that. Often we're so committed to our way of thinking that we're shocked when we discover not only does Jesus not work at our speed, but sometimes he doesn't work just at the level of our prayers because he's so much more loving than that. He wants to give us so much more than that. And that's ultimately true when we think about salvation. Maybe you get to a point where you, you realize... There's a God and he, he's going to judge and I'm a sinner and I'm in trouble and... <laughs> If only he would wipe my record clean. If only I would get forgiveness, I'd be satisfied for all eternity. In fact, I'll even sing hymns in heaven if I can get forgiveness. And and we hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus preached, and we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, will you please forgive my sins because I'm guilty and I, I need to have my sins forgiven. I've got no hope in anything else except you. And then gradually we discover that he didn't just forgive us our sins. He birthed us into his family. He adopted us into his family. He reconciled us and put his spirit within us and made us part of the relationship that he has, the father and the son by the spirit, reaching out to embrace us, to make us. uh, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I'm part of the bride of Christ. Wow, I'm a friend of God. I can go into eternity and I can go into tomorrow. Same thing. I can go into both confident because I've got so much. He's given me a new heart. He's given me a new spirit. And salvation. 
salvation is like this massive, massive, overwhelming blessing. And many of us come just saying, please, will you forgive my sins? Oh, how he will. Yes, plus. Because that's the kind of God that we have. He accepts the weakest faith from us with our utter confidence that our, uh, our plan is the best one when it may be way off. He recognizes us in our most desperate situation where we've got nothing to bring and we're at our most, honestly, at our most pathetic, our most unimpressive when we're broken, when we're, we're weeping and, and weak. And he, we come to him in faith and our faith is weak and it's got holes in it. And we think we know the right answer and we don't. And we think he's going to do this. And he says, I'm going to do this. Because that's the kind of God that we have. And so whether you're coming to Jesus for the first time in faith or whether you've been a Christian for years and you're just facing another Monday, facing going home again, facing another situation just like last time, whatever the situation is, come to him. In all the desperation, recognize that you've got nothing. Recognize that not even your faith is impressive. You've literally got nothing, but you've got him. Therefore, you've got everything. And as you come to him, know that his timing is right, even if it doesn't seem to be. And know that he wants to bless you way more than you're even prepared to receive. Because that's the nature of our God. So let me pray for us. And and let me encourage you to pray. Not impressive prayers, desperate prayers. Because he's a God who is very ready to answer them. Let's pray.